With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of the Personal Finance Show on money, how it works, how to invest it, how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 137. It's titled, Is the American Dream Dead? The phrase, the American dream, came about during the Great Depression. It was part of a popular 1931 book by historian James Truslow Adams. He defined the American dream as that dream of a land in which life should be better and richer and fuller for everyone. Now, typically, the American dream assumes, if you, if you fulfilled it, you can earn more than your parents. And we're going to look at a study in today's episode that shows that there, if you were born in 1980, there is only about a 50% probability that you will make more than your parents, which would fall short of the American dream. The question is, why is that? We're going to explore that in today's episode But it's not always easy finding the culprit for something that we don't like within the economy and the financial markets. Now, I have an example of a time where sometimes it's really easy. There are some elements where you can figure out who's at fault. For example, I recently listened to a live rendition of Oh Holy Night. It was sung by a husband and wife accompanied by a pianist. The singing was beautiful as the couple's voices were perfect compliments. I relaxed after the first verse was completed, knowing they had the number under control. Sometimes when I hear people sing, I just I get a little nervous because I, I want them to do well, and there's all kinds of things that could go wrong. But they had it under control, and I looked over at the pianist to see her playing with confidence. Next to her on the piano bench was her husband. His was a minor part in this musical production. His role was to turn the sheet music as his wife played whenever she gave the sign. Midway through the second verse, the pianist indicated it was time to turn the page. Her husband stood, pulled out two pages of music from behind the stack, and with a flourish, set them down in front of his spouse. She frankly motioned with one hand, and then she stopped playing altogether. The singers also stopped. There was complete silence. The man had placed the sheet music in front of his wife, upside down. She turned the musical score around and the number continued, although it wasn't done with the same captivating magic. There is much that can go wrong with a complex musical production. The companies can hit a wrong note, a singer can be off key, or be overcome by nerves. An instrument can be out of tune. And as I learned, the entire production can be brought to a halt by the unexpected actions of a participant with a minor non-musical role. Now, global economies and financial markets are significantly more complex than a musical performance. So determining who or what is to blame for unexpected or one or unwanted outcome, just it's just not easy. And we're going to give some examples of that, particularly we're going to look at private equity, which is investments by companies, by essentially 
investment partnerships that take generally public companies private in a leveraged buyout. The New York Times recently profiled how two private equity firms, Apollo Global Management and Petropolis and Company, purchased some of Hostess's snack cake bakeries and brands, including Twinkies and Ding Dongs. This was in 2013 and was following Hostess's bankruptcy a year earlier. They paid about $186 million. And less than four years later, the two firms turned around, they had revamped the company, and they sold it for $2.3 billion, making 13 times their original cash investment. 8,000 workers lost their jobs when Hostess filed bankruptcy in 2012. And the current Hostess company, the new one, employs only about 1,200 workers. Mark Popovich is a 58-year-old Ohio resident. He lost his job in the Hostess bankruptcy. He was earning upwards of $20 an hour making Twinkies. He didn't get rehired when Hostess restructured, and he has bounced between jobs since then, most recently driving a forklift at a solar panel plant making $16 an hour. His pension for working at Hostess is overseen by a trade union, and they recently sent him a notice that the plan was close to insolvent. Now, here's the irony, because... The private equity firms have done very, very well, and many of their clients would have been pension plans that benefited from this restructuring of Hostess. Half of the funding for private equity firms comes from public and private pension plans who count on the stellar returns generated by private equity investments to help meet their pension obligations. Many, much of the, if it's not pension plan, many of their other clients are not for profit. So they're providing scholarships if they're a college or they, they're doing other good works as not for profits. According to Thompson Horizon Summer Report, aggregate returns for private equity buyout funds was 11.2% annualized for the 10 years ending March 31st, 2016. That compares to 4.1% annualized for the MSCI All-Country World Index, a measure of global stocks, and 7% annualized for the S&P 500 Index, which is a measure of U.S. large company stocks. Private equity returned 11.2% annualized. And and you look at a pension plan, a typical pension plan, at at least when I was advising pension plans, their actuarial rate of return, that all the finances for the pension plan was dependent on the plans earning 7 to 8%. Not-for-profits are trying to typically are spending 4 to 5% of assets, and in order to keep the real value of those assets over time, to keep intergenerational equity so that the, the amount that they're spending today to benefit the not-for-profit will be the same on an inflation-adjusted basis, 50, 100 couple hundred years from now, they need to earn their spending rate plus inflation. So again, 4 to 5% spending, if we assume 2 to 3% for inflation, they also need to earn 7 to 8%. And with expectations for stocks kind of in that 6 to 7% range, and for bonds in maybe 3 to 4 or even 2%, the way that these pension plans and not-for-profits have been able to sustain and hopefully achieve their target returns is to invest in private equity. 
And, and you can see that it, it's actually worked out. Now, you don't get 11% every year, and these are very, very long-term holdings. Typical private equity fund you're holding for 10 to, to 12 years. But generally speaking, private equity investments generate those returns partially through financial engineering, With that, which means as several years into the buyout, they will go, and once they start restructuring the company, they will buy a large sum of money. In fact, I think at this particular deal, they ended up going out and borrowing $1.2 billion and then paying a special dividend to the private equity limited partners. Because the way that you generate a return for a private equity fund, it depends on the the, the faster you can get the money back to your partners because they do what are called capital calls. And so you might commit, let's say, $10 million to a fund they will pull down the, the investments over a, a one to, to four-year window as they identify investments. And then as they restructure or sell them, then they send money back. And so it's an internal rate of return calculation or a, a dollar-weighted return calculation. So it, it's adjusting for – because they control the, the timing of the cash flows. And so if they can get money back sooner, then the internal rate of return will be higher. And as a result, they'll sometimes go out and they'll borrow money and pay a special dividend to the shareholders. And obviously, the, the, the senior partners of the private equity firm also benefit from that. Now, this financial engineering sometimes gets some negative press. But the, the reality is that lenders would be unwilling to lend on such deals unless the vast majority of the loans are paid back which means the private equity firms still need to find a way to make their buyout targets profitable so they can service the higher debt burden. In the case of Hostess, it turned to profitability through cost-cutting and increased productivity. When Apollo and Metropolis purchased Hostess at auction post-bankruptcy, it had a great deal more flexibility compared to Hostess pre-bankruptcy. The new hostess had lower operating costs as it was freed from former union contracts, some labor rules, pension payments, and debt obligation. The new company also improved productivity by installing automated baking systems that produce more snack cakes with fewer workers. It changed the Twinkie formula by adjusting the amount of enzymes to maintain moisture and extend shelf life from 26 days to 65 days. Instead of using its own trucks and drivers to deliver to stores, it sent baked goods to warehouses and relied on retailers to use their own transportation networks to get the snack cakes to the stores. In other words, they increase the productivity of the, the bakery. Now, they certainly had the assistance of the bankruptcy court, but the company had gone bankrupt. It was not able to sustain, and so they've taken a smaller part of it. It certainly has contributed to, to some layouts. It's a much, much smaller company, a little more nimble, more flexible, but it also rewarded those private equity shareholders. Now, economic growth measures the dollar output of goods and services produced by a country from one period to the next, and this is known as the gross domestic product or GDP. And over the long term, the value of the output or GDP, GDP expands as the number of workers increasing. So we have more workers or the workers produce more output per, per employee. In other words, they're able to produce more Twinkies in an eight-hour shift, usually with the assistance of, of some type of automation. 
We've seen this in U.S. manufacturing. Output has increased in the U.S. by 8% from September 2000 to September 2016. We talk about manufacturing losing many, many jobs, and they have. The number of manufacturing workers has declined from September 2000 to September 2016 by 29%. There were 17,230 factory workers in September 2000. Now there are only 12,269. Yet they're they're producing more. They're producing 8% more. That's what productivity is. Being able to produce more with less workers. Now, in an ideal world, and this certainly would have helped the American dream, if if the actual number of manufacturing workers expanded because the output increased significantly more than 8%, but it hasn't because many of those manufacturing jobs, as we've talked about on the, in the episode, have gone overseas or they've been replaced through automation, and that has definitely hurt the middle class. And we'll look at some of those statistics here in a few minutes. So the question remains, is this private equity activity good for the economy or is it harmful? A 2013 study was published in the National Bureau of Economic Research. I'll link to it in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. It's titled Private Equity, Jobs, and Productivity. It was led by Stephen Davis, and he was assisted by his colleagues at the University of Maryland and Michigan, the Census Bureau, and Harvard Business School. They analyzed 3,200 firms and 150 establishments. And by establishments, we're talking factories, offices, retail locations. And they wanted to determine whether buyout firms help or hurt the economy in terms of jobs and productivity. Here's what they found. Private equity buyout employment shrinks by 3% at buyout targets, so the companies that were bought out two years post-buyout, and by 6% five years after the buyout. This was compared to the control group. But they also found that the buyout targets created more jobs at new establishments at a faster pace than the control group. So maybe they're, they're firing jobs at the existing company, but they might start a new company or new branch and create jobs. And so there's a lot of activities. They found that buyouts accelerated both job losses and job creations. But overall, there was a net job loss of 1% two years after the buyout compared to the control firms. So the buyout companies, there's definitely a loss of job. They're also accelerating the job losses and creation. But this creative destruction also, according to the study, improved productivity and profitability as buyout firms tended to reallocate manufacturing work to the most productive plants. And, of course, the use of leverage in the deals also contributed to higher earnings per share. And so, you know, my view is is most buyout firms actually do improve things. It, It can be horrendous if you lose your job. But generally speaking... They, they are not just doing financial engineering, taking money, leveraging up companies. Generally, in order to get the money they got, they have to improve the companies. And they appear to be doing that. And their work throughout the U.S. is extensive. Currently, there are about 7,500 companies in the U.S. that have, are, are owned by buyout firms. And that encompasses about 4 million workers. And, and their catalyst 
to lead to a more efficient economy, a more productive economy, which contributes to economic growth. But it certainly isn't as simple as identifying the person on the piano bench that that turned the page upside down, right? There's good to private equity. There's bad to private equity of beneficiaries, many of them pension plans that benefit from the stellar returns, but you also have pensioners that that lose their jobs and, and their pension is at risk. And so it's not a simple thing. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com david. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So the title of today's show, Is the American Dream Dead? Private equity firms really got started kind of in the 80s. And since 1980, the economy is twice as large as it was back then. Per capita GDP, twice as high. Yet, if you were born in 1980, only 50% probability that you will make more than your parents. This is from a study that Raj Chetty put together in his team of economists called the Equality of Opportunity Project. If you were born in 1940, there was a 92% chance of making more than your parents. 1950, about a 79% chance. By 1960 and by 1970, if you were born in those years, only about a 60% chance of making more than your parents. And now, about a 50% chance. Now, most of that decline is due to more unequal distribution of economic growth. In other words, income is going to the top 
10%. And the bottom 50% are, have basically stagnated. We're going to look at some statistics on that in a moment. Now, Trump wants to grow the economy faster. He says 4%. If indeed we grew the economy faster and had the economy grown faster since 1980, about 62% of individuals born that year would be making more than their parents as opposed to 50%. This is from some simulations that Chetty did in this study. And if we had redistributed a little bit, then about 80% more. In other words, these are solvable problems when we look at what, you know, how can we continue the American dream, the ability to make more than your parents, to have a better life. Now, there's things we can do at a macro level, but certainly some things we can do at the micro level. But let's look at some income data to see how, how bad it really is. Thomas Piketty, Emmanuel Says, and Gabriel Zuckman released a study, pretty fascinating study earlier this month, called Distribution National Accounts, Methods and Estimates for the United States. And they were basically looking at the income distribution. And you can get this study by going to moneyfortherestofus.net, episode 137. It'll be in the show notes. Or if you remember my insider's guide, you will have gotten links to this show notes, to these studies, as well as a summary article of this week's episode. You can also sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's free. That's a weekly email with that information. Well, this particular study, it showed that the average income per adult in the United States is about $64,600. But then when we break it down, who has what? The bottom 50%, so about 117 million individuals, earn on average $16,200 a year before taxes and transfer. So that they get about about half the population only gets about 12.5% of national income. The middle 40%, so those from essentially the, the median to the 90th percentile, they get about the same. They get about 40% of the national income, about $65,400 per year. The top 10% earns 47% of the nation's pre-tax income, and that's about $304,000 per adult in the top 10%, and the top 1% is about $1.3 million. Now, we have distributions, we have, we have tax credits, we have welfare, we have Medicaid. So after the, the transfers, it's a little better. But right now, pre-tax, it's about 1 to 20, a ratio of 1 to 20 between the average pre-tax income of someone in the top 10% versus somebody in the bottom 50%. They make 20 times more, essentially. When you look at it in China, China, the top 10% only earns about eight times more. The ratio of eight to one, about $7,750 is what the average Chinese made in 2013. So their, their income distribution the, or income inequality is much less than the U.S., but after adjusting for you know post-tax and after transfer, it's a, a little better. The bottom 50%, they get $25,000 per year instead of the 16, which is about 19.4% of total income. That's their income share. So 50% get 19.4% of their income. The middle 40 still gets about 40% of income, about 67200 The top 10%, 
gets 39% of after-tax income, so about $252,000 after-tax. And the top 1%, $1 million after-tax, about 16%. Now, that's kind of the distribution. We kind of all know that's income inequality. More fascinating, though, is the, the growth. And here, here's the thing. The bottom 50% from 1946 to 1980, their income grew on an after-tax basis, on a pre-tax basis, by 102%. But from 1980 to 2014, it only grew 1%. Completely stagnated for the bottom 50%. And, and those that are concerned that, you know, who was it that voted for Trump or how did Trump get elected? Think about it. Your income on an inflation-adjusted basis hasn't increased since 1980. Not at all, right? That's who voted. I mean, not everyone. Obviously, people voted for both Clinton and Trump. But that's where there's, there's some concern, just the fact that no growth at all in income. Meanwhile, the top 10%, their income grew by 121%. From 1980 to 2014, and the top 1% by 205%. Now, after you know, after adjusting for tax, it's a little better. The bottom 50 percent, their income grew by 21%, but the top 1% still grew by 200%. And so what does that mean? That means that income inequality is increasing, that as the economy grows, much more of it is going to the top 10 and 1%. Part of it's due to private equity firms, this idea, and part of it's doing manufacturing going offshore. As we become more productive and as globalization takes hold, the middle and the bottom isn't benefiting as much. So what can be done about it? Well, the Equality of Opportunity study found that the differences in upward mobility across different areas is caused by differences in a childhood environment. Those that had a better environment were able to move. So through maybe housing vouchers, be able to move to a, a, a better neighborhood, a better school district. They found that their probability of increasing or earning more than their parents actually grew. In fact, there are cities throughout America, they said, where children's chances of moving up out of poverty remain high. And they gave examples of Salt Lake City or Minneapolis. They said, the study says cities with high levels of upward mobility tend to have five characteristics. Lower levels of residential segregation, a larger middle class, stronger families, greater social capital, and higher quality public schools. David Leonhardt in the New York Times commenting on this study, he wrote, Given today's high-tech globalized economy, the single best step would be to help more middle- and low-income children acquire the skills that lead to good-paying jobs. Notably, most college graduates still earn more than their parents did, and other data show, yes, even after taking into account student debt. But education is not the only answer. Incomes have also stagnated because of the rise of corporate power and the weakening of labor unions, leading profits to rise at the expense of wages. The decline of two-parent families plays a role, too. And tax policy has not done enough to push back against these forces. The middle class, not the affluent, deserves a tax cut. So there there are many things that could help. The question is, you know, we can help on a a micro level. Certainly education, 
Our kids need more education. We need more education. We need to be lifelong learners, to be flexible. But there's things that can be done on the macro level. I've not talked a lot about universal basic income. This is the idea of a social credit. It was put forth in the 1920s by a a mathematician, C.H. Douglas, and it was born out of the worry that technology was opening a gap between total output and the income earned by workers. And he suggested that governments could make up the gap so everybody would get kind of a national dividend. And this is something that I think Finland is testing next year. And they were gonna, you're going to pay upwards of $900 per month. I actually like the idea of a, a job guarantee where if you can't get a job, the government will provide a basic job where you can help serve in your local community, but potentially even controlled by the local government. But you kind of put a floor where you can work. So not just basic income, but you actually have work and you can participate in the community. Because the reality is many people, they can't, they can't find these manufacturing jobs after getting laid off. Oftentimes, they're getting disability instead. That's kind of been the de facto job guarantee disability. There was an article in The Economist, and it said that since 1988, Americans' disability payments have risen from one in 10 of every Social Security dollar spent to one in five. So that's episode 137. I don't think the American dream is dead, but it certainly has its problems, a very, very, very complex problem. I'm not, I mean, we certainly discuss some potential solutions, certainly in your own life and the life of your family. Education is key, and that's proven in the data. That's how to get ahead. But for those that don't have, everyone needs the opportunity, and so it's important to have the programs in place as a national government, as a local government. So everybody's got a shot. Everybody's got a shot to get ahead and live the American dream or even the global dream. I don't want to just pick on Americans. This should be a dream that everyone can have a more fulfilling life. Show notes for moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I share with you in this episode has been for general education only and not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.